Sarah. Hi, Allison. So there's something in the air in France. I mean, kind of literally, and I, I guess I probably shouldn't joke about it, but it's coronavirus, right? It's mm. making headlines every day here in France. And as we speak, there have been 18 identified cases here in France. Mm-hmm. 12 people happily have recovered, but two people have died. One was a Chinese tourist. The other on Wednesday was a 60-year-old teacher who had had no contact either with China or any other infected country, for example, Italy. And that's a a huge concern. So now French health authorities are carrying out a very uh, extensive investigation to try and find the source of the virus, which, you know, who was the person who actually would have contacted those two? Yeah, yeah. Generally, there's this feeling, I I would say, of like controlled panic. I mean, the cases are going up. People are watching it. Authorities are putting in place responses. We're hearing all kinds of plans that are being put in place. Yeah, French children, for example, who traveled to Italy and some Asian countries during the recent uh, Uh, school holidays, they're being asked to stay at home in quarantine for 14 days. So the president actually today even said that France is facing an epidemic. Yeah, that's new, isn't it? They were denying that before, at least not using the term. It's given the hard right the chance to say that France should ban people from entering from infected countries. Yeah, and there is a wariness, isn't there? I mean, in trade is taking a hit. France trades a lot with China already with the coronavirus problems that China's been having car and wine exports have been down. And French farmers have already noticed a drop in exports, particularly of pork, to China. And they've been talking about that, along with a whole load of other subjects, at the annual agricultural fair known as the Salon de l'Agriculture here in Paris. This is a big event. It's an enormous event, Sarah. Once a year, the capital is just absolutely awash with all these prize charolais, uh, cattle, for example, their pigs, sheep, but also loads of local produce, wine, cheese, and copious amounts of straw. Basically, a huge slice of the French countryside comes to Paris once a year. Yeah, it's a chance for the city and the country to meet. This annual meeting is one of the, perhaps the few times when farmers here can actually feel valued uh, because presidents have to go to the salon, ministers go, future candidates all head over there. They're all desperate to pat some animals on uh, on the head and a few farmers' backs and tell them that they love them. And at the moment, farmers are in need of a bit of love. There's been a wave of what the French call agro-bashing of late. People, especially perhaps from cities, taking to social media to take swipes at farmers and more broadly to, you know, agriculture in France. So I guess in the crosshairs is probably pesticide use, also animal welfare. Absolutely. It's really stressful for the farmers because many of them are saying they really aren't doing anything wrong. It's already a very physically demanding job. It takes a huge amount of time. Some of these farmers, especially if they're raising animals, they're working 24-7 and sometimes for very low pay. Yeah, a lot of them are working minimum wage. Absolutely. It can also be very solitary work. A third of farms are actually run by one man, Mm. uh, unmarried And so faced with all those difficulties, one farmer now commits suicide every two or three days in France. So there are a lot of reasons to be negative about the the business, about the profession. But a bunch of farmers from all across France um, have taken to social media to try and fight back against this agro bashing and to say that it isn't all so bad and that they are not to blame for all the problems we have with the environment. And so they've gone on to places like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to tell their stories. And the group is called France Agri Twitters. Uh, they're very connected, very innovative and rather positive about the future of French farming. <laughs> 
There's an air of optimism here at the agriculture fair where members of France Agri Twitos are having a midday apéro with some sophisticated petit four, beer and wine, all French produced, of course. The group was founded in 2017 and now has close to 300 members. They offer one another support in what can be a lonely job. But above all, they're using social media to reach out and reconnect with French consumers. Ça filme. Allez, c'est parti. Salut tout le monde, c'est Étienne Agri, youtubeur. Je vais vous présenter une application avec laquelle... Oh non, je vais recommencer. One of the most successful and media savvy farmers is 39-year-old dairy farmer Étienne Fourmont. In 2017, he set up his own YouTube channel, Étienne Agri-Youtubeur, a play on words between YouTuber and the word beurre, which in French means butter. Every Sunday, Fourmont posts a five-minute video of himself on his farm in Viré-en-Champagne in northeastern France, caring for his herd of 85 cattle. His YouTube channel now has more than 40,000 subscribers. Using his GoPro camera along with drone images, each episode, and he's made close to 100 now, takes us around the farm. We see him cleaning the stalls, feeding the cattle, installing milking robots. He explains, for example, artificial insemination, why it's important to remove calves' horns, all of that using simple vocabulary and Consumers in France really have a poor understanding of where their food comes from. It's partly our own fault. Perhaps we didn't know how to communicate properly about our profession 10 or 15 years ago. We have to catch up, and modern means of communication, especially social media, are a good way to do it. Fourmont devotes a lot of time to countering attacks from animal rights activists who are very active on social media. In this video, he responds to an American vegan activist, Erin Janus, who on her YouTube channel shows images of cows' udders bleeding after they've been milked by the robot. This leads to premature aging, exhaustion and mastitis, a painful yet common condition in dairy cows, which is inflammation and sometimes infection of the udder. On s'arrête sur une photo où on a l'impression qu'on a une mamelle qui est pleine de sang. It's false, says Fourmont. This isn't blood. It's just colored liquid that the robot automatically applies so that we know the cow's been milked. Animal rights groups like L214 have published shocking images of animal cruelty, some taken on French farms, others in slaughterhouses. That's encouraged some activists to storm French farms. There were more than 70 incidents last year. At Fourmont's farm, activists spray-painted the words Abolition 2020 on his outbuildings. These abolitionists are against livestock breeding full stop, but they don't know how things work. They've seen a couple of videos by L214, and as an animal breeder, I find them shocking too. But I'm certain they don't reflect a wider reality. Most farmers take good care of their animals. We have to show that. Fourmont says mistreating your animals, in fact, doesn't make sense. I always say the better the conditions in which my animals live, the better my own working conditions will be. And that's better for my business. It's in my interest that my animals are kept in good health. 
I put rubber mats down for the cattle in their stalls so it's more comfortable. They have as much fresh fodder, grass, corn as they can eat and fresh, good quality water. And as we have milking robots, the cows are the ones who decide when they want to get milked. 30% of France's farmers work in the dairy business, but the Twitter's group includes cheesemakers, winemakers, vegetable producers, big and small farms and grain farmers like Nadej Petit. After working in a variety of sectors in France and abroad, she and her husband took over her family's farm in Normandy two years ago. Together, they harvest wheat, barley, linseed, linen and potatoes. She's very active on Twitter and conveys her love of farming largely through photography. I believe in the future of farming. You get to manage your own company, choose the direction you go in. And I think we have a role to play in adapting to climate change and questions of biodiversity. Farming allows you to innovate. We use drones and equipment to test the soil, so we use fertilizers only when needed. I love to communicate about what I do, so we welcome the public and school groups to the farm. Crop farmers like Nadej Petit are in the crosshairs of environmental activists for using pesticides. They're seen as damaging to human health, biodiversity and responsible for polluting rivers. France has halved its use of pesticides over the last 20 years, but nonetheless, products like glyphosate are of concern. For the moment, farmers like Petit and Fourmont say they can't farm without them, but as they're so expensive, they say they certainly don't spray for the fun of it. They also try and limit damage to biodiversity, not least of all bees. In terms of pesticides, we use drone technology, and we pay technicians to do experiments to know exactly what kinds are efficient and the exact dosage. It means we never use more than we have to. The products themselves are also very tightly regulated. We spray at night because conditions are better and it means the bees are back in their hives. During the course of the apéro, one of the group's members, agricultural journalist Julia Andrieux, does an open mic with her own version of the hit song Balance ton quoi by Angèle. She celebrates farming and she appeals for people not to bash farmers. I thought the song would generate a few happy tweets within our circle, but it got a bigger reaction and lots of farmers thanked me for what I was doing. Even if it doesn't change the way the farming world is seen, it's been heartwarming for some of our farmers. I don't believe people are deliberately trying to topple our system of agriculture. There's just a lot of misunderstanding. But consumers aren't stupid. If you explain properly, they can see it takes time to change working methods. It can't be done overnight. Stockings. You mean, Sarah, the Christmas kind or the <laughs> silky, sexy ones or the ones that are nowadays made of nylon, perhaps? Yeah, we're, well, it is the nylon ones we're talking about. Right. It was introduced on February 28, 1935. 
And this is a rather tenuous French connection, but it's a good story, right? So hear me out. <laughs> so anniversary of the invention of nylon. Yeah, nylon was invented by a chemist at the DuPont Chemical Company. That's in the United States. But it's a company founded by a Frenchman. Oh. Eluter Irene Dupont de Nemours. Wow, no wonder he shortened <laughs> it to Dupont. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He came to the U.S. in 1802 to escape the French Revolution. By 1935, DuPont is a fully American company, and there's this chemist, Wallace Carruthers, who's figured out the polyamide fiber that began to be sold under the name of nylon. So it was first being used for toothbrushes. By 1940, it was replacing silk in stockings. But that hit a snag, mm. pardon the joke, during the war, Second World War, when DuPont started focusing nylon production on the war effort, making ropes and parachutes. So women went without stockings because even the old silk ones were running out. Silk was being supplied from Japan. Wow, I imagine the, there must have been a massive black market then. A black market for stockings. Actually, apparently when American soldiers showed up in France for the liberation, they came with packs of gum and American cigarettes, also as kind of currency and nylon stockings. By the 1970s, the French chemical company Rodia became a major nylon producer. France took the lead in stocking production, but it was focused on quality. They they remained quite expensive. They were being produced uh, for fashion houses like Dior. They weren't meant to be disposable. They, they'd even be repaired by hand. Yeah, I remember my grandmother doing that. Stockings didn't really become these mass consumer goods until the introduction of Lycra and the stretchy stockings without seams that we know today gradually took over. The price dropped. Um, nylon actually is a material that can really hold up. The first nylon stockings didn't really run. You could actually wear a pair for a really long time. Which is clearly not good for business, is it? Yeah, exactly. So DuPont specifically asked its chemists to weaken the fiber so that consumers would be forced to buy new stockings every once in a while. So one example of one of the first cases of what's called planned obsolescence, when companies engineer products to be worse than they could be to, to force more consumption. It's so unenvironmental, isn't it? No, and not I, sustainable. I'm exactly not sustainable at all. And I, I'm pretty sure France has a law against this. Yeah, it? yeah. In 2015, part of this energy transition law, uh, France put in place um, what they're calling a repairability index label that as of next year will have to be put on a lot of consumer goods. Um, also, it'll require uh, companies to make available spare parts for their products. And in early February this year, Apple actually fell foul, perhaps, um, of this new legislation. Uh, a government agency found it guilty of failing to tell its customers that it had deliberately slowed down uh, some iPhones to encourage them to get a, a newer model. And they slammed a 25 million euro fine on the company for that. So perhaps it means that this law is working and we might see some other cases of planned obsolescence being put to the test. So Alison, in your neighborhood here in Paris, um, how far away would you say that like your basic services are? I don't know, say like your doctor. Yeah, I'm extremely lucky. We deliberately chose to have a doctor just around the corner. Ah. So it's like a two minute walk, but he's due to retire soon. So <laughs> may have to go, yeah, may have to go a little bit further in the future. Well, well, my doctor's is just a 10 minute walk away and I can also buy food, do some shopping in a pretty close perimeter around where I live. Um, and, and there's this move in urban planning to push these 
kinds of close encounters with services. Um, instead of previously maybe the focus being on mobility, putting in place transit, these new planners are talking about proximity, the idea of shortening distances to improve what they call our useful time. Well, time is a pretty good thing to have. It's really useful and becoming more and more scarce. Um, a pioneer in this idea is a guy named Carlos Moreno. He's a researcher of urban development here in Paris. He's originally from Colombia, though he works at the Sorbonne. And he's been pushing this idea of what he's called the 15-minute city. The idea is that you could access what he calls six urban social functions within 15 minutes on foot or by bicycle. That urban social functions, that's very technical jargon. It is technical jargon. The way he defines it is, and he has six of them, is basically housing, where you work, where you consume, where you get your health care, your education, and your leisure, all these six things within a close radius. Um, his ideas have been picked up by the current mayor of Paris in her re-election campaign in next month's local elections. I decided it'd be interesting to talk to him a bit about these ideas. If we have the possibility to access the maximum of these six functions in a shorter perimeter, in a shorter distance, mm -hmm. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, by walk or by bike. The citizens maximize the possibility to be happy. The thing that strikes me, especially in a city like Paris, is work. When you're talking about a really dense city and, and more demand for housing than there is supply, how do you live near your work if your work doesn't pay you enough to live near it? This is a very important point for reimagining the city in the next decades. The modern urbanism, in particular, in the big cities, was uh, characterized by the very important spatial segregation. So, for example, in Paris, we're talking about La Défense, for example, yeah. being a hub for these big, big companies all the way to the west of the city. There's nobody who really lives around there. Yeah. This was a development plan put in place in the 70s and 80s. This is the um, topic of my research. So why the urban planner has been accepted to develop the chaotic city? When uh, we have decided to concentrate at the west of Paris, the big uh, corporates, and at the same time, uh, several real estate companies created different housing programs at the opposite. Today, this is the you know, real situation. In fact, uh, at the 21st century, we have a very enormous difference with the emergence of the hyperconnectivity, the possibility to have the connectivity by uh, mobile phone or computer. This is the new situation. We have the possibility to decentralize condition for working. This 15-minute city idea or this limited time city idea then kind of depends a lot on technology and this ability to do your work remotely, I guess. Yeah. Um, one of the things that comes to mind then is all those jobs that you can't do remotely. I was thinking about my, my child's school yeah. and the people who work at the school, yeah. you know, who aren't paid that much, can't afford to live near where they work. And the people who live around the school probably would not accept that mm. kind of salary. And that seems like a really difficult thing to reconcile when you're dealing with something like trying to get everything pretty much in proximity. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
there are the work and there are the uh, incomes, the possibility to find a job uh, with the good uh, conditions and find this job with the good condition in the proximity. This is uh, very lucky. However, the 15 minutes concept, this is a concept uh, in order to change the method for developing a city in the next decade. The problem today is the legacy of the spatial segregation. As a researcher, I um, explore cities. I was very surprised by the quantity and the quality of the public equipments. Mm. Library, swimming pools, gyms. Very, very important investments. The problem is not the presence. The problem is the verticality. The verticality is the monofunctional uses. This is a gym only for sport. This is a school only for students. This is a building of the mayor only for administrative services. Mm-hmm. My uh, gymnase, maybe we have, I have the possibility to develop other activities. I, w- I went in a place dedicated at the beginning only for sport. And today, the new name is the Social Sport Club. This is a place dedicated for sport, for kids, school support, for helping young people to discover skills, the repair for bikes, the fab labs with the computer softwares Mm -hmm. in the same place. And what does that add to the experience of living in a city? In this new trend, the responsibility of the place is not only the responsibility of the employee by the city. This is the shared management. This is very important for these places because people is proud. And if people are proud for living in this place, people take care of this place. This is not very sophisticated to develop ideas if we want people become proud. So, so this, the idea of proximity and the idea of, I, I feel like it also comes into this, there's real questionings in the world about globalization and needing to go more local. It's environmentally makes mm-hmm. sense. But what about the fear of, I mean, I guess the word would be ghettoization. Everything is close by, everybody's working together, do you actually end up mixing people? For that, this is very significant to use the good words. I don't want to recreate the new villages. The, the real concept, this is the grid city. It's the possibility to have access for essential urban functions and at the same time to have the possibility to move in different places in cities for access to different other services. We have the possibility with the 15-minute city to develop an intensive exploration of all kinds of resources. So beyond Paris and in France, there's a lot of, a lot of sprawl. There's a lot of these sort of mid-sized cities. I, I feel like with the, the Yellow Vest movement, yeah. it came up a lot where people um, you know, feel really disconnected from where they're living. They feel like they're forgotten from services. Um, and they don't live in 15-minute cities. They have to drive everywhere. Yeah. In fact, we have in France a very particular model for the development in the territory because we have the attractivity 
of the more important metropolises, Paris, Lyon, Marseille. But at the same time, we have several, several kind of small towns. The problem for the people in this small town is the mobility for working, because the job is the urban job. The Yellow Vest was the expressions of this uh, difficulty for people to continue to live in the small town and at the same time constraint for going in the metropolises for working. But so then how do you deal with that? Reimagining economic hubs or, you know, what do, you, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, I consider that for the territories is to develop the concept of the half-hour territory. Thirteen minutes, not by work and not by bike, by car. The different studies show that when people spent less than 30 minutes for uh, accessing essential functions, people is uh, happy. The uh, emergence of uh, internet, of the high-speed connectivity, changed the uh, mindset of people. The speed today is the gold rule. Half hour is more important today than 20 years ago before internet, and in particular for the young people. We're talking about real shifts in culture yeah. and the way people live in cities. Is there a change in France? Are we, are we going to see in the next 5, 10, 20 years a major shift in how French cities <laughs> are, are being built? Yeah, yeah I hope. Uh, because in the next decades, climate change is a reality. The economic model we need to change. The mode of production or uh, consumption we need to radically change. But, but of course, when we're talking about urban planning, we're talking a scale of decades, right? Mm -hmm. You can't just snap your fingers and change the way a city is. My role today is to propose not the new measures for changing now, yeah. but to propose a new path. This is a long journey. The most important challenge today is to uh, change the mindset of people, to open their eyes for developing a new lifestyle the proximity, solidarity, rediscovering humanity, rediscovering otherness, to rediscover resources invisible, but present. <laughs> so you said, Sarah, that the current mayor and Hidalgo has shown an interest in this guy's ideas. Yeah, in fact, he's yeah. actually, I think, joined the campaign and he's an advisor um, on her urban planning and urban development. Interestingly, he has said that he kind of shopped his ideas around. She's the one who bit. He's trying to get these ideas out there. Of course, as he said, this is long-term thinking. It's interesting to be linked to a political campaign, which seems kind of immediate when you're thinking urban planning, you're thinking 10, 20, 30 years in the distance. Yeah. But I do think that these are the kinds of things that will be playing in these upcoming local elections. So we're getting to the end of the show, but before we go, a little footnote to a story we, we ran a few weeks ago. Remember uh, Mike Woods, he went to Brittany to look into a mysterious stone. Yeah, the secret of the mysterious Brittany <laughs> stone. This was an 18th century stone. There were some words in an unidentified language on it, some vestiges of the Breton language. Yeah, the stone was discovered in the 1970s, but nobody since then has been able to figure out the message written on that stone. So the town launched a contest for people to chime in what they thought the stone was all about and the results have come in. Da, da, da. So there were thousands of suggestions were sent in. 
There are two winning entries. They're both from researchers, from academics, based in Brittany, so local boys. Mm -hmm. They figured that the inscription was some kind of a tribute to a friend who had died in nearby waters. Don't forget we're on the coast. Yeah, one of them believes the language on the stone is Breton. The other says that it's Welsh, although that's very closely related. Both of them, though, rule out the idea that it could be a secret cryptic message or, or multiple languages. That puts paid to my idea that it was some mysterious Breton mythology. <laughs> uh, but anyway, some good, hard, you know, solid academic research behind it. You can read a lot more about who were the winners and what they actually deciphered in an article that Mike has written on our website, rfienglish.com. That's it for the show. If you liked what you hear, subscribe to Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also write to us. Send us a note to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week. Bye. Bye.